Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Shadi Talui Wallace, thank you so much for joining us on Baha'i Blogcast. This is so exciting. This is, this is two dear old friends, uh, each who have a Baha'i podcast. I think that my podcast is probably heard by like four or five dozen people because I've been on the air for a couple of years and yours is only heard by like two or three dozen. So maybe just a dozen. I think maybe there's just 12 maybe, people out there. Maybe a dozen. So all in all, um, we're, we might get up into the hundreds on this thing. Yeah. Without powers combined. I feel like we're like, we could be superheroes right now. Without That's powers right. Combined. Wonder twin powers activate <laughs> as they said <laughs> in a seventies, uh, commercial. Um, I want to say, though, for the record, that you have a way cooler title for your podcast, Cloud Nine. How'd you come up with that? Actually, it was David, I think his wife, David Langness, he's um, an editor for Baha'i Teachings. And um, we'd kind of come up with a few other variations um, that I guess weren't fully up to snuff. And, and David took this and with his wife came up with Cloud9. I just thought it was brilliant. And it kind of, on so many levels, it covers uh, what the, the podcast mission is, which is uh, to interview artists, but also to talk about this elevated state that the art can be brought to when it's incorporated with the writings and the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Um, and so, so I thought it was just really brilliant. Baha'i Blogcast is cool too. Yeah. Like a play on words. Thanks for saying so. There's going to be occasional barks in the background because we just rescued a dog. Oh, really? Um, What kind of We rescued a dog that we're trying to find a home for, but we may not be able to find a home, so we may just have to keep it. But it's it's been an an abused pit bull. But she gets, her name's Diamond, and she, um, if anything comes towards the fence, she goes kind of ballistic. So forgive me if that happens. We can edit out some of that. But you may hear occasional barking. It, it wasn't too disruptive. So no, but okay. thanks for being so kind. But Baha'i Blogcast with your host, Rain Wilson, is pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> so the purpose of your podcast is focusing on artists. Yeah. Some so- Baha'i artists, some not. And using the arts for elevated conversations and um, kind of seeking transcendence through, through the arts. Yeah. And also, I think as an artist who also lives in the world of the universe, you're kind of... Um, you know, there's a lot about the arts that is dichotomized and fragmented or for artists to feel that way where they can't talk about their faith and their work or um, can't bring those two worlds together. And I've also met in my lifetime a lot of people who are very open and not necessarily like about how they have this Baha'i inspired art, but maybe how the Baha'i faith and its teachings influence their process in making their art indirectly or directly. And I think that conversation is what I was really fascinated about. And I came up with this concept and presented it to Baha'i teachings and they were super on board. Um, And we actually do interview probably, we've only interviewed Baha'i artists so far because we're really speaking specifically to like the teachings of the Baha'i faith and the teachings of Baha'u'llah and how that's directly impacted them in their, in their process of making the art. Um, 
And so that's kind of where we've been at. And I've had the amazing opportunity to interview uh, so many cool people like Steve Sarowitz, who just released a movie called The Gate, which- Wait a minute, uh, I interviewed Steve Sarowitz too. (laughs) I know, I saw that. (laughs) I know, I was like, Inception. We we have the (laughs) same pool of- uh... Of, uh, of resources. We should talk there. about that. We should plan that. Um, no, that's cool. And then I've I've interviewed uh, Mitali Shakabanda, who just released a project uh, in Massachusetts, a jazz project, and Laili Tofik is an amazing ceramicist, um, and another dear friend of mine, Ruha Fafita, who lives in Australia, but she's a Tongan Tapa artist, and I was really interested about Indigenous art and the community-based approach to that and how it brings people together and is formed through consultation. Wow, that's yeah, and like this, this I you know attraction to beauty and the importance of of um, striving for excellence in our in our work. Um, I've got some more interviews coming up with um, Celine, this photographer from France, who talks about beauty and and unity and diversity. And um, I interviewed this other Delton. He's a he's from the Bahamas and he's a ballet dancer in Toronto, and got the opportunity to interview him. So. Oh, and another one that I really loved was uh, Louise Prophet de Blanc, who is a First Nation storyteller. Um, so these are all kind of coming up. And I interviewed Jack Lenz last week about his music. And so there's some really cool stuff happening. And I'm really excited for this to develop and grow. And I'm totally learning as I go. Oh, that's fantastic. That's yeah. really exciting. And people can find yours on where all fine podcasts are found and also on Teachings.org. Yes, that's right. We haven't got it on Spotify yet, but um, we're hoping to. But for now, it's BahaiTeachings.org and also like yeah. the Apple iTunes. So far, so good, Shadi. <laughs> I've always admired you because you've had one foot in the secular world. You're a, you're a great musician and singer, songwriter. You performed in bands and you've performed in the sexual, sec, not sexual, the secular <laughs> world. Sexual world. <laughs> um, and you know, you work. You worked for years at Sarah McLaughlin's music school, doing teaching and and using music as service in that capacity as well. And then um, you've also had these, you know, these spiritual albums, these devotional albums based on the Baha'i holy writings. So, I guess the big question is this dichotomy that you described earlier between like our spiritual lives and our um and our secular lives. How do you how do you blend all this together you you have a foot in all of these different areas i know you're releasing an album of more secular music soon you've had several devotional albums coming out so what's your take on this kind of quandary that high artists sometimes face that's a really good question i think I struggled a lot with it in my youth and my teens i felt like i had to keep these worlds separate for them to function appropriately. And I think actually moving to a different country and starting from scratch was really helpful to me. But I also gained a lot of confidence uh, working with professional Baha'is who were very knowledgeable about the industry of music, but also uh, very kind of deepened Baha'is. And I, I gained confidence in working with them and, and they weren't afraid or ashamed to hide their beliefs and and recognize the impact and the influence that it was having on their daily life. And their daily life was their music and was their craft and their art. And so personally, I went through this struggle, but I, I came out kind of really trying to understand how can I live in coherence 
And, and it wasn't that I was a different person in either of these settings. Like how could my, what is my true identity and how is that rooted in the Baha'i faith and how can that carry me through all of these different facets of life? And so I think as a musician, I've definitely taken a while for me to understand how I'm, I'm rooted in both of these worlds and how they complement each other. Um, but I think it comes down to how is how are these teachings impacting the content of my work and the way that I I, I act and behave and I treat people um, and and I think that's what it's come down to. But I, I definitely came from a world where I was making these devotional albums and people were like, "You're boxing yourself. You're not going to be able to get out of of making devotional music." And that that fear of like, why why can't I? Music is music in every form. It, the content may change, but it's still it's still music. It's how I approach it and the mental kind of way that I see it. Um, and so to me, music is music. It takes different forms and different settings. I've got this, you know, name for like the devotional stuff that I do and and Tiny Havoc, which is this band that I'm in and we're releasing an album. The content, the songs are about humility and and diversity and also and, and empowerment. Sometimes I'm also like when I was, you know, writing those songs, I was a single 20-something-year-old woman living in Vancouver. And so Obviously, some of those songs are also impacted by my my physical reality. Um, but I mean, there are always. What do you mean? What of, does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think it's like like dating or something like, like dating that, and being a woman, and what it's what's that like dealing with men in the world, and and dealing with um, feeling empowered or feeling deflated about about my state of being in the material world. I think I have every right to recognize those but it's like how how are those experiencing experiences manifesting but being impacted by my spiritual beliefs and so the songs you know there's one called I want to be your lady it's called be your lady and it's just it came from a conversation with a friend and he was like yeah yeah I'm just going to go see my lady and I was like I want to not be your lady but I want to be a lady to somebody and, and I was like okay well I'm also I want to be somebody's lady I want to be somebody's that's lady. Jackson Brown I want to be somebody's baby tonight <laughs> Right. So yeah, kind of stemmed from that. I was like, I'm still this, I'm a Baha'i. Um, I'm a Baha'i first. And then I felt like my, that was my spiritual identity. And then my physical identity being a human woman that was in her 20s, I think that came secondary. And I think as Baha'is, we always try to strive to recognize our primary identity as our spiritual identity. Um, and so that took a while for me. Anyways, that was a long-winded answer to your. It was question. a good answer, though. How do you, when you write a devotional song? I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that you find a quote that you like, that sparks something, or you feel like there's a melody contained mm. in and around that quote, uh, an idea around it. Man, I mm. think it's so much easier to write a put a prayer to melody than to write a song. I think I've maybe gotten comfortable with it because that's where I, that's where I started. Mm. Um, but I feel like the sacred writings and the revealed world of these manifestations of God have so much more potency and ability to share what I'm feeling or to address a concern that I have in that moment than, than my own words do. I feel like my own words fall short every time. So I don't see myself as a songwriter, but I just see myself as this kind of physical channel that's 
taking these 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 writings of my faith and and making them uh unique with my own my own voice and interpretation but my i mean the practical in a practical sense i i i pray every day i try to pray every day and and i'll find these these words and these hidden words and these sacred writings and sometimes it's just a, a portion of a longer prayer or a longer tablet but it'll have like a metaphor or some sort of imagery or word that sparks something a melody um but i'm not a trained musician i didn't go to school to study music i studied in a high school and i you know i've always been around crowds that have pursued it as a profession but for me i i come from a very kind of simple approach where I have a couple chords that I'll use um, and I'll try and match them to the melody or to the concept that I was hearing in my head when I was uh, reading these prayers. And, and I'm often really humbled because we know that we're, we're encouraged to put these words to music, but not if it's going to take away from the meaning of these prayers. And so I'm constantly bringing myself to account like, is this Baha'u'llah speaking or is this Shadi speaking? Is this Abdul Baha speaking or is this Shadi speaking? When I find that I'm putting myself first, then the message of the prayer itself kind of gets lost. So I'm constantly doing this to and fro of like, okay, how much of this is being, is magnifying the word versus magnifying me? And it's But isn't that an interesting- humility. Yes, cer certainly the artist, I believe, should not, try and magnify themselves necessarily. But, you know, it's interesting because you're the lens that is expressing this holy theme or these holy words. I think about like, you know, the, the, the Renaissance painters, you know, you have two contemporary artists, for instance, uh, in the Renaissance, where you had Michelangelo doing the Sistine Chapel, and you also had Raphael doing his portraits of the saints. And they're very, very, very different and done at the same time. But the, the artist can't help be kind of contained and expressed at the same time. I, I find that to be an interesting facet of, of the art that... Mm. The artist cannot completely remove themselves from the work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like an element of, of themselves that's still in there. Yeah. And I always, I, always, I always played with that and like I was always a bit insecure about that. But I also see my musicianship as a gift from the creator. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is the best way that I can thank the creator is by, is by using it for for this purpose of elevating elevating these writings through music or helping others to to connect in a really unique way to the creator um, and I've heard countless stories of people listening to to my prayers that I put to music and hearing them in a different in a different way that they hadn't heard them before or mm. helping them come to a state of of being that what they weren't able to do in that in that moment or time sometimes we need to pray but it's just not the right time and and our, or we're just not our body's not feeling it so you know i think there's this amazing i mean there's a lot of science that goes into it but a lot of connection between between music and the human brain but then when you add this extra element of of the sacred writings of our faith i think it's this amazing transcendental kind of experience and i'm very grateful that I could be part of that process. Yeah. 
So how does tiny havoc fit into that? <laughs> it's a good question. I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> um, I think in order to be an artist, you have to be in the world too. And, and as a Baha'i musician, um, and I say this is not like I make Baha'i music, but I am a Baha'i and a musician. Um, I think I'm, I, there's not a lot of people out there doing the same things as I'm doing and exploring, exploring the same ideas. So I have to also be in the world of music. And I think working with Tiny Havoc and such amazing musicians, they're all so, so talented. I've learned a lot. Um, about about musicianship and also the process of collaboration like i've always been the main person in my own solo projects i'm always by myself um and so working with a team of people and learning about that collaborative process and there's such humble and amazing consultationness i don't know what the word is but they're mm -hmm. really good at consultation and i and i think we've also learned a lot about because we we worked alternate hours like i was working as the administrator of the sarah mclaughlin school of music and they were all teachers so my hours were during the day and their hours were in the evening when this when the kids finished school they would come and and join the after school program and so our hours were completely opposite and so what would happen is the boys would be in the classrooms jamming and then one of them would run up to my desk and be like shada we've come up with something and then i'd run into the classroom and I'd go listen to it i'd record it and then i would go home and try and write something that would come to my head or you know i have like a notebook or just scrap pieces of paper flying like i literally have one right here of just like notes and chords um so you're the singer and lyricist for i'm a singer Havoc? and lyricist and i come up with the vocal melodies and they come up with the instrumentation and the arrangements and then what happened in the beginning was that they would come up with the instrumentation and then i would come in with these lyrics and they just wouldn't glue and and I, we had to learn like, oh, it's a process of developing together. Like they come up with a couple licks and then I come up with a concept or some sort of lyrical idea, maybe a couple, a couple lines, and then it slowly builds. But we, it took like three years for us to figure that out because we just didn't allow the time for it. But I think we have a groove now and yeah, we're going on our first tour in a couple weeks, which I'm really pumped about. Um, but it's really been a huge learning experience and process because like I can't just do whatever I want anymore. I have to run it by the four guys and, and I can't decide how I want the album cover to look. It's a team effort and everyone's playing their part and I have to say I don't do as much as I should because I get so distracted with so many other things. Like podcasts. Like podcasts and, and also like there's a huge great youth movement happening in my neighborhood right now and we're helping out so many youths and learning how they can serve their communities. And so um, sometimes that feels more urgent uh, than, mm. than writing a song. And, and so I'm, that's probably where my challenge comes is like learning how to balance the needs of, of my <laughs> spiritual condition of my, of my environment and my neighborhood versus my own needs to play this, this music, which feels a bit selfish sometimes. Yeah. Well, the, I, I would encourage you to not think of it as selfish because if you're uplifting people by the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, transporting them, uh, entertaining them, uh, creating works of beauty and, and poetry and even just fun, um, in, these day, in this day and age, that, that is a tremendous service. Thank you. Yeah, I have to just reconcile that in my brain. Um, and, and that's me, that's my own limitation. And I'm creating that fragmentation and that dichotomy. And I recognize that. 
I know that for doing the, the office, it certainly felt pretty darn selfish when I was doing it. And it was kind of a difficult spiritual conundrum for me. I mean, I knew that I was good at acting and wanted to be an actor. And then I found a really, I was lucky enough to stumble into a really great show. But afterwards, it's been amazing because pretty much every week I run into someone or meet someone who says, thank you so much for the show. I was recovering from it brain tumor in a hospital and it brought me laughter and or someone else will say my family was really disunified but we would we always get together in the office is something that we can watch together and and just realizing yes besides the kind of like mindless like distraction and entertainment of the office and you can you know people binge watch it a lot and just kind of like tune out from their lives and <laughs> they're either going to watch they're either going to play candy crush or watch the office and sometimes they choose the office and sometimes they choose candy crush <laughs> so there's that that aspect to it too but when i hear these stories of the positive impact it's had uh with people um the inspiration it's given people and the solace it's given people then i feel a little bit uh, better. Mm. But um, you mentioned before very briefly about the youth work that you were doing and the exciting work in the, in the neighborhood. So yeah. uh, besides having Tiny Havoc and having your career as a Baha'i devotional music artist in your Baha'i <laughs> work, I, like I know title. you do. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> should make a card. Baha'i devotional music artist. <laughs> <laughs> that can be on Shoddy your Twitter, Twitter page. Um, but what... Um, what kind of work are you guys doing in the neighborhoods in Vancouver? I know when I was working up there and visiting up there, there was a lot of exciting work going on, but tell me about it. Where are you working? What are the populations and what are you doing with them? Yeah, so I live uh, in a part of Vancouver called Commercial Drive. And um, What a Vancouver's, gorgeous name. Yeah, right? Commercial Drive. Mm, it just um, evokes <laughs> elm trees and blossoming flowers. Business. and <laughs> Auto glass um, stores. <laughs> it's actually it's actually really beautiful. I mean, you know you know better I think than most people. But today is a gray day, um, mm -hmm. but there are many sunny days too as we approach summer. Uh, so commercial drive, it's it's very beautiful. It's a very kind of um, I look outside my window as I speak, um, but it's a very diverse community. Originally, it was a very Portuguese Italian community. And as more indigenous people moved into uh, Vancouver, uh, into the urban setting, they, a lot of them settled in Commercial Drive. So it's got a very high number of indigenous peoples, uh, indigenous people to Canada, and a lot of housing complexes for uh, indigenous families to live in. And um, so over the years, it's become a very, it's become very gentrified as well, commercial drive. There's a lot more young families moving in. It's a slightly more affordable area of Vancouver, which has got a quite a, a housing crisis on its hands. It's becoming very unlivable. Um, the cost of living is very, very high here. So people are kind of coming out to commercial drive, and which is still quite expensive, but it's relatively more affordable than a lot of other parts of Vancouver. Uh, and it's got a main strip and there's lots of cafes and restaurants and, and grocery stores and, and markets and people come from all over the lower mainland to get produce and, and stuff like that. So I'm just giving a picture of, of Commercial Drive and and the work here that we're doing, there's there's roughly, there's about four teams of us that live and, and work and serve in, in this community. And so 
various. So in a way, of- you're you're almost like a home front pioneer, like people moving to that community to kind of work in that community. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And I think over the seven years of, of living on this street on and off, I've seen huge transformation in, in, in the changes that I've witnessed in, in the community and also transformation in, in the activities um, has been really, really great. Last April, we mis- received a message from the international governing body of the Baha'i community, the Universal House of Justice, and it asked us to access the widest cross-section of individuals and invite them to uh, the 200th anniversary of the birth of Baha'i the bicentenary, which was happening in October. And so we all kind of came together as a, as a neighborhood and we were like, how can we, how can we do this? And we identified kind of four populations that there were a bunch of us that were working with. And so we kind of, we fractioned off into these, into these teams that was working with these populations. And, and my, my team, um, and I had already been working with indigenous populations, children and youth. And so my team kind of decided we're making this a focus. Um, and we had this huge celebration at the Aboriginal Friendship Center, which incorporated the arts and dance of, of local indigenous communities. Um, and we had, you know, not even local, we had people from the prairies doing powwow singing. We had people from wow. up north do, you know, families come and share, Nishka dancers um, come and share their, their indigenous dancing. And we had storytelling and, and welcomes from all of the chiefs or from the nations that we live on, which is Suelitus, uh Squamish and Musqueam territories. And so we had representation from these territories and um, welcoming us and and thanking us for the work that we do in these communities. And so that kind of evolved more into like, okay, we have have this huge population of people that want to be empowered, that want to learn how to serve their communities and want to to study more about these, these concepts of justice and oneness and unity. And so how can we do that? And so we started to look to the youth to engage them in developing their capacity to help us serve these populations. And so what has happened or what's taken shape over the last six to eight months has been these pockets of of youth in local high schools that are coming together in the evenings to study this material called the Ruhi Institute. And they're learning about concepts of prayer and our true nature and what is, you know, what is the soul and how can we feed the soul and how can our soul, once it's been fed, serve other souls. And so we've been learning about this and, and learning how to work with, with youth and kind of gained, you know, quite a few youth that want to also make a change in their community. And they see the struggle and the poverty and and, and the daily kind of difficulties that families and, and children and youth experience here in East Van, and they want to directly impact and change their communities. And so we've been working with these youth, and it's not just like a one-off thing once a week. It requires, and I'm sure you know this, working with Lide, constant communication and constantly being in their lives and, and working with them and learning what their reality looks like and how they can live this life of coherence where they're going to school, they're studying, they're trying to pass their exams, they're applying for university, they're dealing with stuff at home all the time. Mm-hmm. And then how do you integrate service? And now, okay, we'll take all that and now help other people. Mm. There's a group of us that are learning about 
how to accompany these youth so that they can live in this world, but also live in coherence. Because these youth are all recognizing their capacity and they're recognizing their ability to serve others and, and the, the power that they have to contribute to the betterment of their world. So then what is our role as, as their you know, mentors or their friends to accompany them and to support them in fulfilling that obligation that they've now realized. So it requires a lot of time and effort. And I think being a musician and also working with websites like Baha'i Teachings offers me the flexibility to then go and, you know, if the youth calls me at 10 a.m. and says, I need you to pick me up and take me somewhere, I'll be like, yep, sure, no problem because they're going to a children's class or something like that. And, and, and I think it's being readily available and opening your home, like having this place that I live become a center of activity has been so huge and an amazing opportunity for me to serve. I mean, it doesn't take much to literally open up your home to host youth to plan a children's class or to plan a junior youth group. Well, this is, it's so exciting what you're talking about. And it's such a different, I think for, for the Baha'is that are listening, it's such a different mode that the community is in where it used to be, let's find the most charismatic Baha'i to give a proclamation event or a fireside. <laughs> and then hopefully some people declare, and that might've worked in like 1975 and they mm-hmm. sign their Baha'i card and say, I want to be a Baha'i. And then they just kind That's of start right. coming to feasts and stuff like that. And that, that whole mode of interacting with the public, it just doesn't work anymore because it's, you know, let, let, let deeds, not words be your adorning. You know, we have to, we have to walk the walk. So what you're mm-hmm. describing is, Hey, you're not just teaching the faith. I meant there's a little bit of teaching that goes on as you do the Ruhi books, but books are not meant. They're not meant to teach the faith. They're meant to kind of deepen on the faith and deepen on spiritual themes and, and mm-hmm. create community. Um, but that how much work it takes these days to integrate people in our lives and be friends with them and be loving. Absolutely. Building a family. Yeah. And I have to say that like these youth come with, everyone comes with baggage. I come with baggage. Um, These youth come with already like, you know, strong identities, whether it's indigenous or Muslim or Christian or, um, you know, Indian or Chinese or whatever, like they're coming with these identities that have been developed. And rather than say, no, you know, you can't, you have to get rid of all of that. It's like, okay, how can we strengthen these now so that you can be the most confident person that you want to be to then contribute and give back to your community? We're not asking them to leave everything at the door um, before they come in because, you know, Indigenous people have struggled to hold their identities for hundreds of years. And we can't come in and say, bye, you have to, you have to put that aside and get rid of it or whatever. Like, how are we going to help and enable and empower these youth to now be like, okay, you're indigenous. What are the beautiful things that you can, you can bring that you can give back to your communities and strengthen Mm -hmm. and develop your Mm -hmm. communities and the families around you. And so that's been really, really exciting to learn about, I think. And we're not the only community doing this. There are communities, hundreds of thousands of communities doing this around the world. Uh, so I'm just one person that's sharing one significant experience to me, but our listeners should know that this, this process is underway in, sure. in every community around the world. Mm-hmm. You spoke a little bit about having you know arts and bringing in artists. How, what other ways do you weave the arts into this work? Because you know, the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program and the work with the youth is supposed to incorporate sports Mm -hmm. and socializing 
and the arts as well as the book work. I think and service. a lot of <laughs> and service. Thank yeah. you. And I think a lot of Baha'is mistakenly are like, we'll get them all together, dash off a few prayers and try and get a couple chapters cranked out on these books. Yeah. And that's kind of the focus of it. And when it doesn't work, it's kind of like, well, we did it. What else are you doing? Are you doing sports? Are you doing arts? Are you doing service? Mm-hmm. Because the the book work is is only part of the equation. Definitely, I obviously. So I was music. asking more specifically about the arts stuff that you guys are doing. Yeah, because I don't I don't run to save my life. <laughs> Someone <laughs> else can do soccer or throw throw a frisbee with them. I've, obviously, my my strength is music, and so it was really interesting to watch them become more comfortable with this idea of prayer, like. Prayer isn't something that everyone does. You know, they commune with a higher power when they need something or they want something, but to actually sit down and make a space that's reverent and respectful and where you're communing with your creator, I think that was a really difficult concept to grasp practically. And so making music a part of that journey was really wonderful. And literally every week we start with prayers, but I have a list of prayer songs literally behind me on a green piece of paper. And those are the songs that they've all memorized. And these are writings from the faith. And we'll pick a couple of those and we'll start off with with some of these prayer songs and really growing comfortable with the revealed word of God through through music has been amazing. And also next step, which we're working on is developing and writing songs inspired by the concepts that we're studying. And this is already taking shape in South America. They've been exploring how these concepts that we study in these books can translate to song for like, you know, almost... 10, 15 years. So we're kind of just getting into that now. But I think that's the next step for us is to to learn how we can translate and understand, further understand these concepts through writing lyrics and writing songs that are personal. And then also we do a lot of... Are some uh, of these songs, do you guys write together or... We're starting to. A lot of us that are mentoring have have thought about it and created spaces where we can write these songs together. And I've been a part of a few other spaces where we talk about this idea of coherence or this twofold moral purpose that we kind of learn about in these programs. What kind of songs can we write that would relate to the youth that the youth would be attracted to to help them internalize this idea better? And so, so we'll kind of sit and come up with ideas, but the goal and the hope and dream of mine is to come together with these youths that are now engaging in acts of service to write songs about their service and what motivates them and what they're learning about. But we also do painting. Um, we, we've done a few children's festivals where they've had to learn a craft to then teach the children. And those are really great ways of incorporating the arts at a larger scale, um, but in a really, really simple way. I think I think a lot of animators who who animate junior youth groups and tutors get overwhelmed by like, oh, it's not going to be professional enough or it's not going to be nice enough or I don't know how to do collage. And it's like, no, you can literally just get an old magazine and cut out a few pictures and glue them to a piece of paper. It doesn't require any mental capacity or ability. Mm. Uh, I think we get overwhelmed. It really needs to just be very simple, but engaging a different part of your brain is what is what matters. Mm. That's beautiful. That's great. <laughs> Can I ask you another question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That didn't sound. That didn't no, sound you can for sure, for sure. I'd love to answer another question. Great. And can I ask you about your upcoming marriage and who this yeah. guy? What's happening with that? Yeah, I'm getting married. Yay! So, 
how did you meet and who's this person and um, yeah. what's that process been like? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I met Jason. His name's Jason. He's from the prairies in uh, the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan. And I met him four years ago at these youth conferences that were being held around the world. There were 114 youth conferences and I happened to attend the one in Toronto because I was on my way to do a teaching trip in Iceland and Ireland and um, had just finished a seminar at this Baha'i school called Lou Helen. And I was kind of already on the east side of, of the, the northern hemisphere, northern continent of America. Sure. And so I was just kind of like, well, I'm just going to pop by Toronto. And, and so we met there very briefly. It was one of those very late nights at Denny's where you don't really remember anything and you're starving and about a hundred youth all kind of enter this tiny Denny's restaurant on the side of the freeway at the same time. And all the cashiers are just freaking out. And it was one of those, <laughs> it was one of those experiences. So I don't really remember it, but we kind of stayed in touch. And then uh, I happened to be invited. Did you have the moon over my hammy? My <laughs> is- hammy? Did you have that? What is, oh, is that, the, is that one of my menu? favorite food puns of all time created <laughs> by the Denny's organization? Wow. I, I will try that. My hammy. You'll be surprised if I don't go there very often. Ham and eggs. Sorry. Okay. Go ham on. and eggs. Yeah. I'll give it a shot. Apparently you get a free meal on your birthday at Denny's. Oh, wow. I know. I just learned that. I'm like almost 30 and I had no idea. So I have to definitely take advantage of that and I'll have what you suggested. Um, So yeah, I was invited to do, I do workshops at summer schools and um, I do presentations at summer schools. And so I was invited to go to the summer school in Winnipeg and he happened to be living in Winnipeg at the time. So we reconnected after many years and, and it kind of just took off very quickly and he was finishing up, wrapping up school in Winnipeg. He'd studied music. He's got a jazz degree actually from Brandon University in Manitoba, but went back to school after doing a few years of service to study computer programming. Jazz in Manitoba is (laughs) through the roof. The scene is just... The jazz scene in Manitoba, Winnipeg, (laughs) Yellowknife, all those places. It's crazy. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, so he went back to school. He's a computer programmer and he was finishing up and it was a really good time for him to kind of reevaluate his life and life choices. And he chose to come to Vancouver so we could be closer. And things have been really awesome um, and and challenging. There's a lot of growing pains, obviously. But um, one thing that's been really tremendous is to be able to serve with him. He immediately came and started teaching as a children's class teacher and then assisting me with accompanying these youth. And it was just really amazing to build this community or be part of a community together and to work together in that capacity and learn about each other in that way. And so he proposed to me in the middle of uh, the Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs, about (laughs) two months ago. In the middle of it? He turned to me and he was like, I'm ready. I'm like, you ready for what? (laughs) And he whispered, he's like, he said something that I, I won't, I won't share, but it was really sweet. And it, it was basically like, will you marry me? And I was like, we're in the middle of a movie about stray dogs. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I thought it'd be memorable. <laughs> and so then we stayed for the rest of the movie, but I don't remember anything that happened afterwards. I have to go see it again. Um, well, and then I we love left. this concept of Baha'i courtship, because obviously the number one thing that we know, you know, Abdul Baha t- teaches us is to become acquainted with the character of the person. And right. When I hear about successful Baha'i courtships, it usually involves serving together um, because you really get to know someone's character when you're serving and working with them because service is hard and you're 
using a lot of different skill sets. You know, it's organizational and it's artistic and it's working with people and it's collaborative and, um, and it's such a great way to get to know someone. Yeah. And, and there are some high stress situations like the bicentenary was a huge production and a lot of it fell to me and a, and a couple others to put together at a very, um, I know we'd had many, many, many months to plan, but obviously in true fashion, things get left in the last minute. And so he really supported me and, and we really supported each other in that very stressful time, but with so much joy and excitement. And I was like, I do really want to spend the rest of my life with someone who will take something like this and and be joyful about it because it's not it's it's for us but it's for Baha'u'llah um and and I don't know if it's successful yet I mean it's been successful so far hopefully it'll be successful for all the worlds of God but for now it's been a really wonderful wonderful journeying and learning experience and I think Baha'i courtship is a lot of people are like how do you date as a Baha'i and I'm like I don't know but serving together is definitely been and and really being with each other in a lot of in a lot of spaces where um we're thinking about these ideas of like how can we mm-hmm. contribute to our community i think that's been really really huge for us as a couple and in, in our growing it's so hard because dating in a contemporary model is difficult to do because you when you go on a quote-unquote date you're presenting your best self right mm-hmm. so you're going out to dinner with someone then you're going to be charming and articulate and present the best sides of yourselves but you're not showing, you know, your character defects uh, in that kind of context. But um, working and in service, you start to see the other aspects of the person that, you know, you're tired and you're working late and, and you get to see the, the real them emerge because I think so often divorces happen because people just in the courtship process, they, they only got to know the positive qualities of the person. They didn't see the whole package. Yeah, absolutely. I think being in a space all like, and, and so many different spaces and, and people have been asking me, like, how do you, how did you know? How did you, cause I made this decision like probably six months into our courtship that I was like, I've, I'm good. This is good. Like this is working. Let's go. Let's keep. Let's keep this ball rolling. Let's move to the next stage. Did he stage. know that before Isle of Dogs? <laughs> it took him. A, it was. It was no, a did long you let time. Him know? Did you say? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. I had to. I had to be patient and high. Okay, I, so he asked you, but you had said, <laughs> "Hey, if you if you want to do this thing, I'm I'm up for it." Yeah, like four months before that. So it took a lot of patience. Okay. <laughs> it was a little bit slower to come to that realization, and I. I it was hard. It was really hard. I was like, am I not enough? Um, <laughs> but, but I had to be patient because everyone has their own. It's a huge decision to make and it, everyone has their own pace. Maybe the hugest decision. Yeah, definitely. And it, everyone has their own pace. And I was, I was totally respectful of that. It was difficult. I'm not going to lie. But um, people have asked me, like, how are you so certain? And it comes back to this idea of character. It's not like, okay, he's good to look at. Sure. And he's funny, but all those things might change. But like, what is it about the character that I'm so confident in? And I think it was his devotion and dedication and like his generosity of spirit, like things like that, that I would hope maybe evolve, but the foundation won't change. It'll always be there. And and that was something, those things, those unchangeable things, I think for me were the ones that gave me confidence so early on in our process of getting to know each other. And that's what I've told my friends. It's funny, they're asking the same questions that I was asking when I was single. 
And I, I can't believe I'm on the other side, kind of, sort of now. It's just mm -hmm. a weird thing. You are wise in the ways of love, buddy. <laughs> Maybe wiser than I was before. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's it. Are you coming back to Vancouver anytime soon? You didn't like it here. <laughs> I loved Vancouver. You did? I've worked many times in Vancouver and in Toronto, and I think they're both great cities in their own way. And the so Canadians kind of, there's a little kind of tension, a little frisson between the two, but I, I love them both very much. You, uh, on my birthday, you got tickets to a band that I love, um, Neutral Milk Hotel. And nice. I'll never forget that night because I entered very, I came late and you had said, just go to the door and let me know when you're at the door. And I, I'd come late and it was a completely sold out show. And I was at the door and this giant bouncer was like, what do you want? And I was like, my friend got me a ticket. And he's like, oh yeah, sure. Like no one's got tickets. I was like, no, I swear to God, I, my friend's got me a ticket. He's just on the other side of the store. And he was like, oh yeah, who's your friend? And I was like, you're not going to believe me. So I'm just going to wait until he gets here. Cause obviously you didn't believe me this, this far into the conversation. And then you open the, you know, you open the door and you're standing there with your cap on and, and he's like, you're right. I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> and, we go in. and then you said something about you were the only one wearing a hat inside and and I don't know what it was, but you were like, Canadians don't wear hats to shows. And I guess I, I never noticed that until that moment. You were the only one wearing a cap at this concert. And ever since then, it's been like five years or something. But ever since then, I go to a show and I'm looking for guys with hats to count how many guys with hats are, are in there. And I don't know. I think of you when I go to shows now because no one wears hats. <laughs> but it's like the one guy with the fedora. And I'm like, take Specific <laughs> little story. But... When you go to a concert in the, in the United States, I don't know, it's very weird. Everyone's got a hat on. It's a baseball cap or a toque or, you know, a beanie or something like that. Um, a hats are just uh, very uh, popular or something. Yeah, yeah they wear toques a lot here because it's, it's always raining and cold and girls will not want to get their hair wet. Yeah. So what's your story a little bit? You're half Persian. You're half Aussie. Your mom is also a musician. Your mom speaks fluent Arabic. No. Yeah. No? Do you want me to jump in or are you going to keep going? I thought that was true. <laughs> keep going. No, that, that's all I've got. So what is, <laughs> what is this story? You're, you're like a, a walking Benetton ad of, of multiculturalism. <laughs> I know. Third culture kid over here. Third culture syndrome. Um, I'll share that my mom's Iranian and she moved to Canada before the revolution when she was 15. Uh, and she went to high school here and got her diploma and, and um, became an architect an interior architect. And then my dad uh, was Australian, born into an Irish Catholic family and grew up in a very, very strong Catholic boarding school and on his own discovered the Baha'i faith while he was fishing in the South Island of New Zealand. And uh, my mom had moved down to Palo Alto. And was he fishing and then he came up and the hidden words was on his fish hook? <laughs> That's what I pictured. No, 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 no. Uh, good question. He would go out and fish for like three or four weeks at a time. And then he was living in these compounds. They were like a lot of these kind of hippie like compounds in New Zealand. And um, he was just paying cheap rent and splitting a room with someone, I think, because he was away for half the time. And so he'd come back and one of these compounds and he lived in, uh, there was a Baha'i family and they taught him the faith. And being this Catholic born man, he was very inquisitive and, and very, you know, wanted to read a lot and was very curious about these proofs that Baha'u'llah 
had brought. And so we'd go out onto the boat and in the evenings would would read a lot and come back with more questions and then take more books back with him. And so he discovered the faith in that way. And in about a year of, of investigation, he became a Baha'i. And not soon after, uh, the temple in Samoa was being inaugurated and opened to the public. And my dad ventured up with a bunch of his mates uh, from New Zealand. And my mom, who's a, a distant relative of the architect um, of, of the temple, um, Hossein Amanat, they, they all, my whole family, uh, extended family, went to the inauguration in Samoa. And they met there and kind of went on their first date somewhere in Samoa. I think it's Apia <laughs> and, and stayed in touch. And my mom went back to Palo Alto when my dad was in New Zealand and came to Canada to meet the family. And they got married two weeks later. And then I was born in Sydney, Australia, not long after that. And my sister was then born in Sydney. And then my family got asked to volunteer in the Baha'i World Center. And so we moved to Haifa, where my first language, actually my first written language became Hebrew. And I should, I should clarify that my mom only speaks Farsi and English, but in that time, I think we were exposed to Arabic as well and Hebrew. So f- Hebrew became my first language. And then my brother was born in Haifa and together seven years later as a family we moved to Brisbane, which is where we settled. And I had a really difficult time settling in. I was bullied. I, I didn't really fit in um, into the culture there. Why were you bullied? I had you this were like weird a accent. Hebrew girl. Yeah. Um, who moved to Brisbane? I yeah. I said hamburger like, oh, instead of hamburger, and um, and my accent was really weird, and I I looked kind of weird. I had hairy legs. I wasn't blonde and blue eyed, and I guess we didn't have a lot of money because my parents were volunteers for like seven years, and so we didn't have all the nicest things, and that kind of set me apart i think and i was also this creative weirdo like people people would get me to draw horses for them and then not talk to me for like weeks and and so i was kind of really a bit of a learner in in elementary school and then in high school i decided i was gonna reinvent myself and i became this like fashionista muso kid and then i kind of started to find my little mojo in my groove and I was born as an Australian citizen, but I always had this Canadian passport or citizenship that I'd never activated. And I got this letter when I graduated university. I I actually studied business because I wanted to be an artist, but I wanted to be an artist that maybe made some money. And so I tried. I tried. How's that working out? (laughs) I don't know. Not not so good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And so I got a degree in public relations and media communications and studied business. And yeah, and then I I got this letter from the Canadian consulate saying that they would revoke my citizenship if I don't activate my passport or live in Canada or something like that for a period of time. And I was like, oh God, no. So I bought a one-way ticket to Vancouver and I stayed with some family. And my plan wasn't to stick around uh, for more than 12 months. I think I was going to take like a gap year, but like a gap year after graduating university. And then I bought a bed and a couch and I started to really become rooted and involved in the community growth process. And I found a really solid group of friends and got this great job at the music school and connecting with musicians and learning from them and then building a life for myself. And then not long after my sister moved here and then not long after that, my parents moved here to take care of my grandma. And so now it's just my brother uh, in Queensland, Australia. And obviously my accent isn't very Australian now, but it when I'm with my dad and with other fellow Australians, it comes out. But I think growing up in Haifa 
I grew up speaking American English. So I kind of fluctuate very easily depending on who I'm around. Yeah. But it Were you of, always an active Baha'i through all of this process? I was for sure. I, I, I question things. I still question things. I think we all do sometimes, but I think I was always very confident and I don't, I'm always asking my parents, like, what, what is it that you did? And I think this inherent, and I, I think I say this as a very, as in a very positive way, this inherent fear of God that I developed. And it wasn't this fear that I was like, I had to, you know, I had to confess my sins or this fear that I was going to hell if I made this decision. But it was like, my parents can just trust in, in God and I can trust in God and, and hope that I'm protected and hope that I'm confirmed. And, and whatever decisions I make is between me and my creator. And I think that ultimately gave me the strength and the confidence to adopt this faith for my own. But I was always very active in the youth movement and in the activities that were happening as a youth and as a child. And my parents were always very active and we would serve a lot together, which definitely helped. And we and would you were create, a very musical family. Did you yeah. guys sing together at the dinner table? We would table create or? a lot of music together and, and spend a lot of time playing music. And my mom has this mo like most amazing voice. Um, and, and she would sing to us all the time. And my dad would expose us to Van Morrison and Katie Lang and Simply Red and Seals and Crofts and Simon and Garfunkel. And um, so my mom got into Mariah Carey, Red, like <laughs> got into a lot of, I was exposed to a lot of great musicians and a lot of great music that definitely influenced me. So my parents, both not professional musicians, but definitely have a knack and a talent. So you mentioned God there a little bit. What's your relationship to the creative energy, the divine consciousness, the great mystery? I think it's this, it's the divine confirmer. I think we have this element of faith that guides us, that gives us hope and, and believing in something higher that is divinely going to make decisions for me. Um, gives me the detachment and the strength to just keep looking for those confirmations, but to keep moving and to keep creating work and to keep trying new things and meeting new people. Because I feel like if I'm, my ultimate goal is to serve the creator and in, in, in manifesting his, his teachings of oneness and unity and justice, then I'm ultimately going to be confirmed in, in my decision. So I think it's like this higher power that protects me and guides me. And I don't know if it's a she or a he. Uh, I don't know if, you know, they're what they look like. But I, I believe in something greater that guides my creative and physical process and purpose. That's pretty good. Thank you. Pretty good. I might skill that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. I just came up with it right now. But it was a good question to ask. Well done. Thank you. So Baha'i Blog does a series called the Studio Sessions, and you've helped with these before. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a pretty exceptional project that Nesan Naragi has spearheaded. There's 150 that have been published so far in 30 different global locations and 20 different languages of grassroots music. So yeah. any thoughts you have on like just people making music? I, I just love it so much because it's just, it's someone with a guitar or someone with a piano and they... I love it. I love that it's, it's make highlighting. People to sing. They're not trying to be professional musicians. Yeah. I love it. I think there's a place for music in every setting. And I, I believe, and I've kind of created this model of like, 
there's three different kind of modes of, of musicianship in, in community life. You have those who are, you know, the highest level of excellence. They're striving to create music as professionals and, and make a living off of it. And then in the next tier, you kind of have those who are using it in community building, um, in, in whatever capacity, either through writing songs inspired by the, the teachings of Baha'u'llah or they're putting the sacred writings to music. And then you have like the third tier, I believe, that is, is youth that are making music for themselves, but to feel, to, to feel creative and feel that bond and that connection with some sort of higher power um, that, but, you know, maybe not necessarily has this approach of a community building exercise, but it could evolve into either of those three you know, either of those tiers. And so I believe that there's a place for all of these and they all have the ability to support and build each other up. And, and so for me to produce the studio sessions here, it was really seeing those three worlds kind of come together. You had, you know, people that had toured as musicians and had owned an engineering production studio. And then you had them working with people that had written songs in large groups um, or put the sacred writings to music, music in large group settings. And then you had some youth that had come out from a very remote community, rural community that had never worked with a large number of people. And, and we're learning through all of these different processes and, and developing their own skills. Those Baha'i Blog Studio sessions are a really beautiful way in uplifting people and creating more resources for Baha'is to access Baha'i-inspired music and media, and also for those themselves that are contributing to learn from those experiences and develop their own skills. Mm. And I think the studio sessions are promoting the importance of, of music. And I think we won't know how important it is or why we need it until there's just more out there. And I praise Nason and Baha'i Blog for creating a space just to have more of it available and readily available for people online to access it. And it's so different than the SoundCloud work that everyone does when they, they want to be discovered and they want a music deal and Completely. they want to record, they want to put their stuff on YouTube and get huge number of likes and, you know, be on a, this is literally music as service, like, and then music as an expression of the heart. Like, mm -hmm. here's a beautiful prayer. I'm going to set it to music. I know I'm not a professional <laughs> at, a, at a gathering. We're going to sing it together. Um, we're going to build community through it. And, you know, I had some quotes here about music. And I love this one by Abdu'l-Bahá. And he says, although sounds are but vibrations in the air which affect the ear's auditory nerve, and these vibrations are but a chance phenomena carried along through the air, even so see how they move the heart. Mm. A wondrous melody is wings for the spirit and maketh the soul to tremble for joy. And Shoghi Effendi says, it is the music which assists us to affect the human spirit. It is an important means which helps us communicate with the soul. And you think about a broader context to view the creator. And you think about this miracle that we have these ears and they have these little crystals and hairs inside our ear and, and a little membrane that converts it to neurological impulses. It converts it literally to electricity so that we experience it in our brains in the physical world. But, but these vibrations can be happening in the air, literally in the oxygen, mm -hmm. in nitrogen and carbon dioxide that's out there. And then it goes along and hits these little hairs and these little crystals and it converts it to electricity. And then it communicates with our soul and uplifts our soul. It makes our soul to tremble with joy. 
I mean, that's a miracle. That's unbelievable. And that's only, uh, that's God given like that, that it's a miracle. It, it yeah. can only happen with the creator. And it's a miracle that's done through science. Right. So there's a science of music mm -hmm. and that is valid. And that's also miraculous in itself, but it's so obviously as a sign of God on earth of that transcendent power to have just have these have these impulses cause our soul to tremble with joy. Yeah. Yeah. And so those channels, like you said, and, and creating spaces where music could be shared for people to be able to experience that. That's definitely a miracle. Mm. Well, Shadi, this has been so much fun. I'm yeah. really a huge fan of your music. And do you think that you could share a song with us? Yeah. And with sure. our listeners before we end the podcast? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. Okay, awesome. Maybe not the fire tablet or anything like that. This podcast has already gone on for a little while. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so um, what are you going to do? I'm going to perform a prayer by Baha'u'llah. Great. And I call this Kindle, and it's on my latest album, Daughters of the Kingdom. Mm. And to me, when I first came across this, this prayer... I was immediately attracted to this analogy of a fire mm. that Baha'u'llah uses and how he talks about people can't help but be attracted and want to draw nearer to the heat and the light that this flame produces. And this, this flame is the revelation of Baha'u'llah and the teachings of justice and oneness and unity and, and the fundamental teachings of the Baha'i faith that people can't help but want to draw nearer to. Mm. And it's just this incredible force. And so I decided to put this to music to try and reflect some of some of the messaging and some of the metaphors that he uses through music. So this is Kindle.
it's roaring And heard it's roaring I know not, oh my God What the fire is which thou didst kindle in thy That was gorgeous. Thank you so much for sharing that song. My pleasure. Johnny, it is always so much fun catching up with you. Yes, you too, Rain. Wishing you the very best. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real treat. All the best. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.